Hello, and welcome to The Unique CPA. I'm your host, Randy Crabtree. The goal of our show is to keep you at the forefront of the changing face of public accounting by having conversations with fascinating leaders and bringing you their stories, insights, and advice. The Unique CPA podcast is brought to you by Trimerit, the specialty tax professionals. Today, our guest is Sam Allred. Sam is a director at Upstream Academy. He is founder of the Upstream Academy Network, an international association of accounting firms. Sam was the central figure in the development of methodology and best practices now practiced by hundreds of firms throughout the U.S. and Canada as part of the Emerger Leaders Academy, Leader Skills Institute, and his monthly management presentations. Sam interacts with hundreds of accounting firms around the world every year via conferences, partner retreats, management presentation, and training sessions. He speaks and writes extensively both in the U.S. and abroad. In high demand as a facilitator for accounting firm retreats, Sam energetically and creatively engages all of the partners in the discussion using proven processes and their firm's strengths to successfully navigate challenges the firm may face. He is viewed as one of the top strategic thinkers in the profession. Sam has regularly been named as one of the major influencers in public accounting and has been listed the past several years as one of Inside Public Accounting's most recommended consultants. When Sam's not busy with Upstream, he spends time with his wife Marlene and his seven children. And on occasion, you can find Sam in a couple of his favorite hobbies that I have not had the opportunity to uh, enjoy with Sam yet, but my goal in life is to be able to do one of these with him. Sam enjoys uh, standing waist deep in water with a fly run in his hand or enjoying himself on a golf course. Sam, welcome to the Unique CPA. Thank you, Randy. So glad to be with you today. It's it's really an honor to have you here. It's it's uh, uh, you and I first met, and I don't even. It's probably six, seven, eight years ago. Time flies. I, I, you know, as you get older, time uh, it gets harder to keep track of. But we were at a conference, sitting at a breakfast table. I didn't know who you were. I was probably one of the only people in the room, I think, who did not know who Sam Allred was. And immediately, I just felt this uh, this real strong connection. And everybody came up talking to Sam. And I'm going to butter up Sam here for a second. But uh, it's easy to do because everybody respects Sam out there. Everybody came up uh, having a good conversation with Sam. Sam was engaged with all of them. And I want to take a second because this. I think this, again, I'm buttering Sam up. But it, it's well-deserved. I wrote down some words that I've heard people use to uh, describe Sam in the past, and they are mentor, friend, experienced, he engages people, he's knowledgeable, he's credible, he's honest, he's kind, approachable, insightful, and as important as anything, he changes the way we think about things. So these are all things, uh, I guess enough buttering you up, but but I, I, you are well known in the industry and it's amazing how many people you respect you. So you, you don't have to respond to that. I just wanted to let you know that uh, I think a lot of people out there appreciate you. Randy, that's kind. Usually you only hear those things said about you at your funeral. So it's <laughs> nice to hear them while you're still yeah. on the top side of this well. Yeah, well, I'm glad that we are not uh, at, at, at that event right now. What I'd like to do is get a little, you know, talking, start talking about what you do as a firm through Upstream. But before we get into that, what I'd like to know is, and this is for me personally, but I think other people are interested, I really want to know how you became Sam Allred, and I don't mean Sam Allred the person, but really, I think 
a lot of people look at Sam Allred as an institute out there, you know, because everybody knows you in the industry for, for what you do in training firms. So a little background, I assume you went to school for accounting, is that correct? I did. I went to Brigham Young University, majored in accounting, graduated with a Bachelor's of Science in April of 1984. And the question at that point was, do you go on and get your master's? I had, uh, I was married. We had our first child and, and I needed to make money, not get more schooling. And so I opted to exit and went to work with uh, Maine Herdman, who at that time was the predecessor of KPMG and started my career in Napa, California. So I've spent my entire 35 years in the accounting profession, and it's been a wonderful career. And I've heard you often talk about, you know, how much you love this profession and how much you respect what people are doing in this profession. As a person in public accounting, at some point you transitioned into technology, is that right, within the firm, or what was your background there? Do you know, I might use the word fluke. Things happen that you don't plan. I, I've got to be more honest. I feel like uh, the good Lord is kind to us and knows more what, what, what we need or what we can do because all the gifts and talents and abilities came from him. I mean that sincerely. So I spent time in a, in a small office where you do a little of everything. So I did taxes during tax season and audits during audit season and helped with whatever. And about that time, that small office received their first portable computer. It was a compact, luggable computer with a little amber screen. And I was assigned because simply, I, I didn't have any skills, but I had the lowest billing rate. So I literally was assigned to put the cart together, plug it in, boot it up, figure out what software came with it. It had uh, Lotus 1-2-3. And um, it wasn't because I knew anything. It was because, again, I had the lowest billing rate. I was uh, expendable. But uh, I just fell in love with what I could make it do. I could figure out how to write spreadsheets in a very short period of time. And nice. that led to the managing partner coming to me saying, we've got a big client. He needs an accounting software. We know you've never done that, but would you help him? And good heavens, that, that opened the door to some incredible opportunities in my career. So really it did go through the technology consulting realm for a decade and a half at least. And um, it was awesome. It just opened the door. So you, you go from being very low on the totem pole in the tax and audit, you know, where nobody knows you, know, nobody thinks you know anything, and that's pretty accurate, and you're only given the grunt work, to where now you're the one people come to when they need um, projections done or they need software found or whatever it is. And, and in a very short time, I went from being clearly a historian to being much more of an advisor, not a trusted advisor. That's an earned title. I didn't earn anything. But I started playing the role of an advisor, and um, I found I love that. I love the consulting side of things. I love the advisory side of things. So I literally have spent the majority of my 35 years on the advisory front, and I've loved it. Well, I, I can see how that transitioned into, uh, I guess, Upstream Academy, which you are now as an advisor there. Um, I, I guess we'll fast forward, but there are things in between I'd really love to know. We'll talk about those some other time, I guess, offline. But Upstream started in around 2000. Is that correct? Or do I have my dates right? No, it did. So I, I was with uh, Maine Herdman for, for a period of time. I was in Napa, California. Uh, I was uh, starting to, to teach other accounting firms how to do technology consulting. I had uh, workshops and uh, an individual from Helena, Montana, attended one of my workshops. 
said that they were trying to, in their accounting firm, their regional accounting firm, they were trying to build a technology consulting practice, asked if I would be willing to come out and spend a week, be hired to spend a week, how to build a consulting practice or teach them how to build a consulting practice in Helena, Montana. I did that. That was in 1989. And, um, it was an incredible opportunity to spend a week with just some really good folks to teach them how to build something from scratch. And they, they uh, extended the offer that if I ever wanted that experience to come and join them, I laughed at the time. And then a series of events happened and it really entered my mind that that'd be a wonderful place to be and raise kids. And so long story short, we moved there in 1990. I became a part of that firm, was there for 22 years, building a consulting practice for the first 10 a technology consulting practice, high-end accounting software, and then uh, and that was very successful and grew very rapidly. And then there was just a period of time when I really loved working with accounting firms. I was working with them, teaching them how to do technology consulting, but connecting with so many managing partners, being asked to speak at conferences where I connected with even more. And uh, I, I just remember one time thinking, if you could pick the best client's on the planet, why wouldn't you do so? And the best clients on the planet, in my mind, have always been and will always be accounting firms for so many different reasons. And so I made that choice. And that was really in the year 2000. While I was still with the accounting firm, uh, I started another another consulting practice and it was called, we called it Upstream Academy. And really because I had such a passion for fishing and I could name it anything I wanted, I had it to have something to do with fishing and the logo is a rainbow trout. So we started that in, in the year 2000. And I, I, I was there till up until about seven years ago, I was still a partner in that firm and running it from that firm and decided it was time to, to move on. And, and, and we moved to where we live now outside of Park City, Utah. And I bought the practice from the accounting firm and continued with the exact same team and doing the exact same thing. So that's kind of the background with Upstream Academy. So really, it's the last seven years then that uh, that you've been separate from. The firm was Anderson Zermulin. Am I saying that right? Yeah, Anderson's, Anderson Zermulin, a regional firm. They have uh, seven, eight offices, mostly across um, Montana. And then I know uh, Tim Bartz is very active with you. And at some point, Tim was managing partner there. Is that correct? Yeah, Tim was managing partner when I joined the firm. Really one of the big reasons I went there. Tim is just a class act guy. And Tim and I have been uh, really best friends for 30 years now. It's just been a delight and a privilege to work with him. So Tim was managing partner for the first 18 years I was with the firm. I was ultimately there 22 years before I, I left. And I, I went from really being an equity partner to a client almost overnight. Mm-hmm. And so AZ, I still rent offices from AZ. They still provide technology consulting, uh, provide our access to the internet and email and those things, still provide tax consulting to me. And uh, so I went from being a, an equity partner to a client. I think a very good client. I pay all my bills, Randy. So I think I'm an A-level client. I was going to say, are they considering you A-level? I know you like talking about the A, B, C, D-level clients. I'm assuming yeah. you're an A-level client. I, I really believe that I am, and I'm viewed that way. So right. I think I've been a very good client of theirs. Well, I think that's uh, something that all clients should uh, should uh, shoot for is being considered an A-level client. And that, I know that's something that you uh, you like to st- to stress with firms to to really concentrate on your A-level clients. And we might get into that a bit. Uh, I'm going to get into some more deep stuff with the public accounting. But before I do, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this, because this is the question 
everybody asks. So something you know for the audience here, something that, that you may or may not know about Sam is that Sam will know your name before he's even met you. Every conference I've ever been with with Sam and really the whole team there, they they'll they'll go up to the to, the, to everybody at the conference, say hi to them by their name before they've even met them before, and that's a skill that I think is amazing. But how did you develop that skill, and 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 I think and why I guess. Well, first of all, I don't think I've got a gift in that area, so it, it's I, I'd be honest and, and say it's just been sheer hard work. But somebody on our team, I don't even remember how long ago it was. I want to say it's probably been now 12 to 15 years ago. Somebody on our team. As we talk about how you deliver exceptional service and we talk about the impact we want to have and things teams talk about when they talk about client service, somebody made the suggestion on our team that we ought to know the names of everybody that ever comes to any of our events. And I remember at the time, and I, I wasn't the oldest in the group, Tim, Tim's a couple of years older than me, and I remember thinking, well, that, that sounds easy for you to say in your young stretchable mind you know as you get older I think it gets harder and so mm -hmm. that that was quite some time ago and we made that commitment so now everywhere I go that's business related somebody on our team and this isn't just me it'd be uh, now uh, they do that with Tim they do that with Jeremy Clopton somebody has the responsibility to look at our calendars and say here's what's coming up in the next couple of weeks so I've got two engagements next week. And so as of last week, they said, here's where you'll be next Monday. I'll be in LA next Monday with a firm. Here's everybody that will be in that meeting. I get two documents. I get their bio with a picture. And then I get what we call a cheat sheet, which is just all the pictures. And they're not in any particular order. They're different order than the bio. And, and I'll be with a firm in Dallas, Texas at, at the latter part of next week. And the same thing there. And so everywhere we go, not just our conferences, but anything we do, I get the pictures and bios. And the expectation is that I will know everybody and call them by name when I get there. We certainly do that in all of our conferences, but just as an aside, we try to do that in every place we go. And, and I think practice gets better. I mean, practice allows you that, you know, right. uh, uh, it was uh, – I'm trying to think years ago, there was a quote that I heard that which we persist in doing becomes easier to do. Not that the nature of the thing has changed, but our ability to do it has increased. So we've just frankly persisted at it now for probably 15 years and it's become part of who we are. Everybody is always amazed and, and people come up to me every time I'm at a conference with you and goes, how did he know my name? I go, well, he's really good at it. And I think you're living what you teach because it's, it's, it, it seems to be part of the whole you know, best practices that you talk about when you're talking about firms. All right. If I could make a comment, I tell people all the time, because they ask about that. There's rarely a conference where somebody doesn't say, how do you know all of our names? But my encouragement to them is, what if you did that with all of your best clients? Right. What if on every engagement, I mean, there's, there's going to be fewer people on an engagement than there are going to be at a conference, for heaven's sakes. Well, what if you did that with your team? What if your team went in and you knew the names of everybody you were working with, in any significant role in the organizations that were clients, wouldn't that make an impact? And most people say, yes, I don't know if they do it or not. I encourage them to sincerely, but that, that ought to be part of what sets us apart. And it sure breaks down barriers to have conversations and dialogue with people when you already know their name. Oh, yeah. It, 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 I think it's tremendous. And I need to strive to be better at that because I am at conferences all the time. And and uh, I, I, I try not to do the 
I think I met you before. I should know I met them before and know that name ahead of time. So I'm going to strive to have that be one of my goals for the next three, well, the next three months conferences are over, but uh, I'll work, I'll practice that skill and I'll be ready for when May and, and June, we start getting out on the road again. All right, enough background, but again, I, I knew people were always curious about that. Now, since you are this, this consultant, you're out dealing with CPA firms all over the country all the time, and a lot of the times what you're dealing with is, is challenges one way or the other, challenges in the profession, challenges with uh, employees, uh, challenges with partners, I'm assuming challenges all over, and you help firms overcome these. What are some of the biggest challenges you're running into today, and, and how are you addressing those with firms? Well, you know, depending on the firm, the, 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 the challenges might change by firm, but they always fall in some range right now. The ones that we see, certainly engagement and retention of people is a huge challenge our profession's facing. And obviously, it's not just our profession, but um, it doesn't matter if other people face it, we face it. So we've got to deal with it. And firms have got to get serious about what they're going to do to engage their people and, and what they need to do to, to retain them and develop them. Uh, firms have, have got to change a lot of things in order to have success in that area. But that's certainly one of the big challenges our profession faces. Comfort zones. Uh, I have said this now for 20 years, because I've been doing this full time for 20 years. One of the biggest challenges most firms face in our profession is they allow their partners and other leaders to get into and stay into a comfort zone. So they literally, three years after being a partner, they have flatlined their career. They're doing the same thing, serving the same clients, doing the same engagements, doing it almost the same way, and they flatline their career so they're not inspiring to the people below them. They're not willing to give away high-level work to the people below them because that would force them to stretch themselves and learn new skills. It is a significant problem. And when I look at the firms that in my mind, are the high-performing firms, they, they could be defined in a lot of ways, but one of the things that really makes them high-performing is that their partners are high-performing, and they're not cruisers. They're not just stuck in a comfort zone doing the same thing. They're climbing another mountain every year, learning new skills and competence and ability. They're always increasing that, and that inspires people below them and develops rapidly people below them when partners are still developing themselves. So I think that's a big issue. And then probably another one that stands out to me is just change. Uh, we've got so much change. I'm not, I'm not the alarmist that says everything's going to change. You know, we, we hear these things, we hear blockchain and, and it was like, oh man, that's right on our doorstep. And now you don't hear it as much. Technology is going to change. Lots of things will change. I, I'm not sure that, that they're going to change as rapidly and as dramatically, but they are going to change. And the challenge we face is we stink at change. I mean, as a profession, we really honestly do. We struggle with it. So when you look at change initiatives across our profession, the, the vast majority of them, 70% plus, fail. Change initiatives fail. And uh, it, it's, it's as much these other things. If you don't want to get out of a comfort zone, you're not going to be very good at change because change moves you out of a comfort zone. So there's too many partners that and leaders that just like the way things are. They don't want it to change. They'd, they'd, they'd like it to change independent of their own personal effort and action. And at the end of the day, they, they, they don't want it to take away the good life that's been created for them. So they're, they're resisting it. So those are just some of the challenges I see within our profession. Well, if somebody is in this comfort zone, and I'm sure every firm has somebody 
at the partner level that that has or been what can they do how do they how do they change behavior if we're if if we do not want to change how do we get around that well certainly telling people to do something is usually proven to be far less effective because we tell partners all the time the things we want them to do and many times they need to be shown how to do certain things it sounds weird that somebody would need to be shown how to do certain things as a partner but it's absolutely true but we could put processes in place I think of firms, I'll just use one example, Randy, and, 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 and if you want, we can go down that path. I can talk about lots of them, but I think of, of firms that, that do not allow partners in their firm to serve the same clients year after year after year. So most, most firms in our profession, when a partner gets a client, they're going to keep that client until they retire, until they hit probably 63 years old, and then they have two years to, to transition clients. They're gonna, they plan to keep the same client, the same arrangement for, for 30 years, 40 years. There are some firms that don't allow that. There's some firms, I think of one great firm in our profession, that, that the rule they followed for now 76 years has been that when somebody becomes a partner in that firm, as a senior manager and becomes a partner, every client they worked on they become the, the partner in charge of that client until somebody else becomes a partner. So you look at that firm and their partners are much more driven to be high performers because they constantly have to keep their business development skills alive. They constantly have to stretch themselves and learn skills because they can't just sit on a book of business and think, these are the clients I'm going to serve until I retire. That doesn't exist in that firm. Now, that firm has grown substantially. They're now a $700 million firm. So lest somebody think, well, that doesn't work. If you mix somebody up on a client, your clients are going to leave you. Well, they're in what we might call a rust belt, and they've grown to $700 million, So that's not true at all. So you could put in place processes and systems whereby you are – and I hate to use the word forcing, but whereby every partner experiences – getting out of their comfort zone on a more regular basis rather than not at all. Now, I don't, I'm not trying to get all the way to the end where it's so disruptive that partners can't even sleep at night. That'd be crazy. Mm-hmm. But it's also crazy to leave it at the place it is right now where partners sleep well at night because they're going to wake up tomorrow and do the same thing they did for the last 20 years. That makes no sense. So I love to find that middle ground where partners are asked on a regular basis to do things that are different than they've done before and to stretch them. So, so one of the things you mentioned then that different when you're changing clients up is the business development end of things. And I know that's something that you talk about a lot because business development is not a natural, I think, talent for a lot of people, a lot of people in public accounting. And so if they're in that setting and that has to be part of this whole uh, change agent, is there a way to teach business development skills? Oh, absolutely. I actually think it's more natural than, than, than we would imagine. What's not natural is selling to somebody. I mean, what's not natural is manipulating somebody, getting them to do something we want them to do, whether they want to do it or not. That's what selling is. And, and partners aren't naturally good at selling, thank goodness, because they wouldn't be in the nice profession they are, frankly. Right. Um, but partners are naturally good at helping. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you don't enter our profession and get all the way up to be a partner and not have general decent helping skills. So if partners, the best way to teach business development, and it's not a, a gimmick, it's reality. The best way to teach business development is to help people see it as helping and that it has nothing to do with selling. 
It's not having an agenda. The only agenda, if you will, is what does the client need? How can I really help them get better? How do I help them achieve the goals they have? And um, it's really helping clients get measurably better is the best way to do business development. So when partners begin to see that and understand that, when they begin to understand how to get better at helping, when they begin to spend more of their business development time with existing clients rather than prospects and the best clients rather than poor clients, they all of a sudden start to move the dial and start to see themselves sometimes for the first time as a business developer and see the potential to become a very good business developer without ever having to manipulate anybody. Mm -hmm. Go for the close, handle objections, advance the deal, all that other crap that's taught other places. They don't have to do that. They simply need to get really good at helping. And once a partner can see that, well, the light bulb goes on and it doesn't feel like Mount Everest to him anymore. Now, it's always a mountain. I mean, you you got to climb and get better to get good at business development, but it's not Mount Everest when you realize this is about helping, sincerely helping somebody. Right. Bringing something to this client that that is going to be helpful for them. I'm assuming listening is a key aspect to learning how to uh, uh, find the areas that they need help in as well, correct? It is, but it, you know, there therein lies one of the big struggles that we all face. I I've met very few people in my life and especially in business that I thought were born with great listening skills. So, so most of the people I meet, if they have good listening skills and then you dialogue with them, they'll tell you, I used to be lousy. And it's really, this is oversimplified. This is what consultants do, by the way, Randy, we oversimplify everything, but you put it into two buckets. One bucket is you listen to speak and the other bucket is you listen to understand. And those are totally different activities and most of us have the weakness of listening to respond Mm -hmm. so it's like when somebody's having a dialogue with us we could almost say to them we never would because it would come across really rude we could say you can stop now i know what i'm going to say and and that that sounds really rude so we don't do that so we wait them out until they're done and we already know what we're going to say because we're not listening we we listen to respond now we know what we're going to say listening to understand never stops and usually is followed by more questions rather than a response And, and to me if we work to develop the skill of listening to understand, we will be a much better business developer because how do you help people if you don't know where they need the help? It's actually a skill that I'm personally always working on, but since I started this podcast, it's 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 kind of a strange skill because I have to listen to understand, but I also have to make sure we're going in the right direction with right. where we should be. And it's a it's really a, an interesting challenge, but I'm enjoying it. So hopefully that's something that I continue to improve with. Another challenge that you mentioned was just attracting and retaining. I think you mentioned this, and I've heard you mention before attracting and retaining good people, and and uh, that's the conference I was with you at last week in Austin, Texas was your Emerging Leaders Academy. And I'm assuming that is the goal of that is, you know, is one, the uh, the firms that you're dealing with are sending what they feel is their future leaders, correct? And then, correct. Yeah. And then your the goal, I mean, do you have a goal that you want these attendees to leave with this, 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 and this knowledge? Uh, what is this academy about? Oh, yeah. If I boiled it down to, to try again, as the consultant does, to make it more simplistic, because there's, there's a lot of things. But 
it, it would the, the big thing is we people that come in ELA firms trust us with their best people. I mean ELA is not a self selection program, so it's got you know five to six hundred people in it. It is not self selection program. It is firms picking their very best people that typically are three years away from becoming a partner and allowing us to participate in not only their development, but but actually to participate in the rapid development of the skills that they want and need. And so the, the primary skill that we're trying to teach is to teach somebody how to be a high yield, low maintenance partner in the firm. And, and too many partners cause so many challenges because maybe they're high yield and high maintenance. Typically, they won't last very long if they're low yield and high maintenance. I mean, you have a bus stop and probably not even slow it down if you had partners that were low yield and high maintenance, but too many partners are high maintenance. And then too many partners are average when it comes to performance, the results they get. So we're trying to teach those in a three-year program. The primary thing we teach them is how to become a high-performing partner, how to really generate high yield at what they do, great results at what they do, and that's not a one or two principle. There's a lot there to teach somebody how to, how to lead people to great results consistently. And then we also really emphasize throughout the three years, what do they need to do to be low maintenance? I mean, there's so many things partners do that, that creates high maintenance. They, they don't enter timesheets. They don't build. They don't train the people. They don't go out and do business development. They don't properly prepare successors. They act as a historian rather than a trust advisor and on and on and on. There's so many things that partners do that create maintenance, worry, bother, res you know, resources are used because of them. And we're trying to teach people how to be high-performing partners that are very low maintenance, that, that don't keep others up at night and worry about them and whatever. And so that's, that's the, the theme and the focus of, of our three-year program. Okay, so so in the, in this situation, they've they've identified the 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 partners in the firm identified these are our next you know up and coming partners. Um, let's send them. Let's let's have them learn these best practices. Let you know be the high performing low maintenance partners. But those might be the the people that are already they expect to retain. Just as a profession in general, aren't we having an issue attracting? Maybe not as much attracting, but retaining good people. Is there a way to get around that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'll tell you the real key to retention. And, and again, uh, I don't give it as apology, but there's, there's a tendency to want to say, okay, how do we simplistically help with anything? And, and, and there's always more complexity than we can imagine oh, yeah. with things. But the, the area firms need to focus on, that the biggest turnover of people happens in the, in the third to fifth year they're with the firm. I mean, historically, you look at firms and, 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 and people even come and, and many times now the mindset is I'm going to come for a year or two, I'll get my name, uh, I'll get, the, I'll, I'll get my, uh, the experience in the firm, I'll get it on my resume that I've been there, and often they'll stay till at least three. And so many individuals leave after their third year. Firms are not looking at how difficult it is for a person in our profession when they hit that third year. It is the most difficult time is from year three till year five. And firms need to look at that and say, what kind of resources do our people need? What kind of connection do we need with them? Because in many cases, it's steady as she goes. The same thing applies. And yet when somebody hits year three, they have so many more responsibilities, so many more expectations. Things get so much more difficult that they leave in groves. Our biggest turnover is year three to five. We find historically that if they'll stay five years, 
they'll likely stay longer. If they stay seven years, they're far less of a flight risk. If you make them a partner, they're not a flight risk at all. So firms need to spend more time just besides just talking about retention. It is a big issue. They need to drill down and say, where has retention been our biggest issue? And what do we need to do different about it? And I'm finding too few firms are willing to look into that. And those that have, it yields all kinds of ideas of what they ought to start doing in that three to five years to really help those individuals get through that period of time, even make it more enjoyable than it otherwise is, so that they can see a longer term career in the firm and they don't just bail. So yeah, yeah, retention is a huge issue. Do you feel in that first three to five years, it's easy to identify the future leaders of the firm? Is there a point in time where they start to shine or is it immediately you can oh, yeah. tell? Oh yeah, it, it might. people might vary a little bit in how long they need to work with somebody, but on average, most people say, you give me somebody for an engagement and I work with them throughout an engagement, I'll tell you whether I think they're a rock star or a superstar. And, and, and those are the two uh, phrases that we use, the two titles, the descriptors that we use. A, a rock star is somebody that's just steady, not necessarily flashy, but just steady. You can always count on them. They are so dependable, so good at what they do. And a superstar is somebody that kind of blows you away. They can move at a much faster pace. Uh, they're brilliant. They're smart. They got lots of energy and ideas and whatever. You can tell your rock stars and superstars clearly after your first year. You might even tell when they're interns who they are, but surely after the first year. And, and, and my advice to firms always is throw parity out the window. Parity is treat everybody the same way. That, that is the worst system mm -hmm. to, to, to keep rock stars and superstars is treat everybody the same. You, you, you see it done all the time. Randy, firms will advance everybody after they've been in the same seat for the same period of years. They'll give everybody the same bonus, everybody the same raise, everybody the next promotion, all together in lockstep. I can't think of a better system to lose great people right. than that. I agree. I, I, it's, it's stupid, but it's, yep. not, it's happened all the time. I had a conversation with someone last week about uh, a managing partner of a very large firm. The way I understood what he was trying to tell me is they're trying to start to implement systems where it almost sounded like completely get rid of titles um, and so that the title doesn't hold somebody back uh, from, from getting to where they want to be or getting where the firm wants them to be and where they personally want to be and really accelerating that partner timeline. I mean, if you have a good person, there's no reason they need to wait. And I don't know what the average time is that, you know, I, I don't even know 10, 15 years. I don't even know what the nine, you know, traditionally you're waiting to become a partner. And now under the system that he wants to put in place, and I don't think they've done it yet, but it, it made sense to me. We're going to forget all that. And, you know, if somebody's the superstar and we know after three years, five years, whatever the time frame is that they're, they're ready to be a partner, we'll do it. Is that something you, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, I'm a big fan of that. I would much rather see firms adopt, and you call them whatever, I don't care. I'd much rather see firms adopt performance levels based on skill than, than titles based on how long they've been with the firm. So, so performance levels, if, if you say, hey, here's the, and I don't care what they are, but here, for sake of discussion, here's four performance levels we have in the firm that are below the, the partner level. And each performance level, we spell out what your skills need to be, what you need, need to be able to do. And then there's no time limit. Heck, you take superstars and they're going to they're gonna be driven to say, how do I get to this first performance level, level one, whatever you want to call it, and then level two, three, four. 
and, and, and they won't be so frustrated that everybody's going to stay in their seat three years until they get to level one. And then everybody will stay three more years until level two. That's what often titles do historically. And I love the idea that, and I've seen more and more progressive firms moving and looking in this direction, and they'll call them different things. I'll just use that, that topic of performance levels, but it's based on skill, talent, ability, and competence, not on how long you've been there. I got a feeling that the guy I talked to may have been talking to you because that sounds very similar to what uh, yeah. what he was saying. And I was very intrigued by it and, and, and thought it was a, an awesome idea. Um, I'm not quiet and shy about that idea. I think firms ought to be doing that. So my voice has been heard more than a few times well, about that. Um, well, I just feel like you're going to lose really good people yep. if you hold them in lockstep. It, it, it drives them nuts. Oh, I agree completely. Uh, there are so many more things that I want to get into with you. And uh, uh, unfortunately, I'm supposed to keep this to a half hour and we're at about that uh, that time frame right now. Maybe we can uh, uh, consider doing this again because, you know, I, I want to talk about the, I mean, I've heard you talk about the bell curve and high performing firms and moving firms to the right. And that would be such an interesting conversation to have on that. So maybe uh I know you're a busy guy, but maybe we can talk about doing this again in the future and get into some other topics. But I think concentrated on what we did with the the employees and uh, and the other topics, I think uh, I think it's very helpful for people to be listening. So I won't put you on the spot now, but if you it's shake your Randy, head, I'm yes, happy, I'm happy to help you anytime anytime you need it. I'm happy to help you. You're a good friend. You're yeah. very loyal to us. I'm happy to help you anytime you need. Yeah, and I'm very honored that I, in my mind at least, uh, feel I can call you friend, and I'm, I'm very uh, thankful that I have that uh, opportunity to do that. I'd like to end the show. I usually like to end it with a, a fun fact, a couple of fun facts about you. I mentioned, right? I think I missed one. I don't think I mentioned the fact that you have seven kids. That's correct, right? I do. I've got yeah. six boys and a girl. Six boys. Wow. Uh, that's, a, that's quite a, a, a ratio there. Were they all raised while you were in Montana or, or uh, what's the age range of oh. these kids? I had three children. They were they were fairly young when we moved to Montana in 1990. Uh, seven when we moved from Montana seven years ago to to, to move to Heber City, Utah. I had very only had two still at home at that point. Now, uh, virtually all of my kids are out of the house. We're empty nesters. But most all of my kids claim to be Montanans. Even those that were born in California or so before we moved to Montana, they claim to be Montanans. So most of my kids go back to that in their roots. All right. And then the other fun things were the, the golf and the, uh, and the fishing. Is there a favorite uh, fly fishing spot you have? Yeah. I mean, uh, I, living in Montana, like we did for 22 years, there were 20 rivers within a two hour drive of my house. And they were, and probably the majority of them were, were really good fishing rivers. So I still get up to Montana probably five to six times a year on fishing trips, many of them with clients. Lots of managing partners get that opportunity to come up with me and and go fishing. And we love that. So I still, you know, if I took uh, the rivers there, probably the Missouri River, the Yellowstone River are probably two of my all time favorite rivers where I've spent countless days uh, and, and, and numberless fish, it feels like uh, over the years there. So I, I still fish a lot, not as much as I did when I lived there. I've got a river, a blue ribbon river within five minutes of my house. It's just so crowded that. Oh, yeah. Spend so much time in Montana, it's hard to just go fish somewhere where you look up and down the river and you see tons of people. But 
Well, the Yellowstone, the Yellowstone, I think I actually uh, went fly fishing in that years ago. Uh, if I know it was I, when I was in Yellowstone, I did. I assume it's that river. I'm by no means an expert, uh, um, but I do enjoy uh, getting out fishing. So I got to you know, pull out my fly rod and, 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 and practice and maybe I convince you to, to take me out one of these days. That'd be fun. All right. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up. Uh, I really, again, really appreciate you being here. And uh, um, anything you'd like to end with, any ways people can get a hold of you or get a hold of Upstream or uh, that you'd like to put out there? Well, probably in today's world, the easiest is just go to our website, upstreamacademy.com is, is probably the easiest way to to get a hold of us. And 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 we're sincere in saying we're willing to help anybody with with anything, if we can help them in our profession, we, we do love the profession. It's, uh, I, I feel like I'm a giver, not a taker. And I've been given so much because of our profession that I'm always willing to give back and, and, and help people where we can. That that's one of the great joys of life, I think. So I, I agree to be able to yep. talk about these things. I am going to go on for a minute now, but I agree completely on loving this profession. It, it's, it's odd that, uh, and I always thought that way, but now for 13 years, I've been out of standard public accounting, more into specialty tax, but it's only probably strengthened my love of what's going on. The fact that I get to travel around and, and meet all these interesting people like you and hear all these stories. And it, it's just, I can't imagine ever stopping. I will, um, but I can't imagine because I'm just having so much fun working with this right now. So. Well, that being said, thank everybody for joining us today. You can find all the links and show notes for today's episode, as well as more about Trimerit at theuniquecpa.com. Remember to subscribe and join us for our next episode, where we'll be going beyond compliance, forging new pathways of delivering value to your clients, diversifying your revenue streams, and discussing leading edge management styles and techniques.